Thanks to um, to Steve uh, for all his good work in coordinating this thing this weekend. Thank you, Steve. Where did Steve go? There he is, right there. There you go. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, uh, for your leadership in this. Thanks for the invitation to do this. I'm very grateful. Um, and thanks to you guys. Um, I've appreciated the conversations around the meal tables and interactions with you guys um, after the sessions and our time together. Um, it's been it's been an encouragement to me. So I'm grateful, um, grateful for this. Um, I was thinking um, between sessions, thinking about some of the uh, some of the comments, some of the questions, things that were said, and. Um, I was thinking about Rob's question. You know, how do you how do you really um, remember how you put it exactly? But how do you just kind of persevere? How do you how do you live in light of the freedom that that the cross secures for us? Because we really and truly are forgiven. Um, and even at, at uh, after lunch, we were we were talking about regrets and and stuff you know you you'd love to be able to erase the memory but you can't you know you, you think about stupid stuff you did and stupid places you've been and just being stupid and uh, and I just you know I, I get to thinking about um, this fact that we just live in this in-between time as we've said you know we uh, Real change has has occurred for us. Um, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, that second letter at near the end of chapter two, um, reminds us that that if anyone is in Christ, new creation, right? In the the in the original language, I think most of the translations will read something like, "If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation." But in the original, it's it's if any man or any person is in Christ, new creation. Boom, new creation. Um, it the the work the the work of transformation, the work of healing, the work of restoration, the work of renewal. It's it's underway in your lives. It, it's it's happening. It's going on. Um, later, at, at the end of chapter 4 of Second of Corinthians, um, Paul says this, we, we don't lose heart, though our outer man is wasting away, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. It's, it's what someone has referred to as a universal positive. It is true for every single person who is united to Jesus Christ. This this renewal thing is underway. In Philippians 1.6, we mentioned, I think, last night, he will bring to completion the work that he has begun in you. Um, but that work isn't finished, and, and we're stuck in this in-between time where we, you know, we sometimes things get real misty and cloudy, and... Uh, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to see where we're headed. It's hard to to find that assurance, the assurance that we really are the beloved sons of God. But we are, right? And and the the work is going on. Um, 
And I, you know, I was thinking too um, about this, you know, this matter of the means of grace, or that Ron, you referred to the disciplines of of the Christian life. And it's not easy. I mean, it's it is hard, and we've said this several times. That's why we need each other. Um, I need you to encourage me. I'm thrilled to hear about this Bible study that that is being contemplated. Just opportunity for men to be together, to read Scripture together, study it together, and encourage each other because we we need each other um, because it is hard. That led me to think of Psalm 61, which uh, which is a um, a great psalm, a favorite psalm. Um, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Right? We have fainting hearts periodically. But then the psalmist David says, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I've done a couple of um, couple of high elevation um, hiking things one in Europe and and one in the Rocky Mountains and it's it's hard to get to 12 or 13,000 feet it's it's hard to 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 climb you know a couple thousand meters which which I did in in Austria um, but man the vistas when you get up there right are it's spectacular so it's it's kind of it's worth it I, I guess is what I'm suggesting it's worth the fight, it's worth the, the pain, it's worth the struggle to, um, you know, to persevere in this, in this Christian life and uh, to do it together. Um, and then, of course, there's the, you know, there is the, the ultimate payoff, that, um, that great day that we talked about this morning and we're going to talk a little bit more about this afternoon. It, it, it's coming. It's coming. Um, so I, I just... Um, Kind of keep in mind Tom Petty, you know, one of one of the church's great biblical scholars. You know, the waiting is the hardest part, right? And it and it kind of is. But as Paul says in Romans eight twenty five, if we hope, this is in that passage where he talks about the renewal of the creation, the curse being lifted, and and everything being restored, and our bodies being redeemed. He says, in this hope we were saved. Hope that is that is seen is not hoped for, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. Jeff and I were talking about patience and how how critical patience is in the Christian life. So, just some additional thoughts and, and passages. Um, just related to this this business of being in between, which is you know which is where we where we do find ourselves. So back to Psalm 103, I want to want to do the same sort of thing this afternoon that we did this morning with the third of these uh, these benefits. Who redeems your life from the pit? I just kind of want to see it as as that wardrobe again, you know, walking through the wardrobe into the into the wonderful, magical world of Narnia, walking through this portion of this verse into into the larger world of the Bible, and um, just um, just see a little bit what what it is that the Bible has in mind uh, when 
God through David uses this language of being redeemed from the pit. So let me let me pray and um, we'll take a look. Lord Jesus, um, thanks for for this time. As, as Steve has prayed, we're grateful to be together and grateful to be around your word. And, and I just add my own prayer to Steve's prayer that you would again grant your spirit, that you'd encourage our hearts, that you'd open our hearts, that you'd open our eyes uh, and enable to see wonderful things, uh, glorious things from this portion of your word. We, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Um, we're talking here about deliverance. We're talking about rescue, being delivered from this pit. Uh, this word that's used in, in Psalm 103, when it's translated in its basic meaning, uh, it just describes a pit, an open pit, a deep, open hole, whether something there naturally or something um, constructed for, for some person. Very often, these pits were construct, constructed as a, as a means of defense from wild animals. Um, old people uh, here in the room will... Maybe some of the rest of you will remember the film Swiss Family Robinson. Remember when the young kid built the pit to catch the, the tiger, right? And he did. The question is, what do you do with the tiger once you've got him? But, but that's, that's the picture that's in view um, in, this, in this word. Um, but it, it becomes a, a metaphor, um, a, a kind of a, a multi-layered metaphor, um, the same word is used in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 12, which the New Testament cites a number of times in connection with the resurrection of Jesus. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. It's a great passage to memorize. Um, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The, the word that's translated corruption is the same word that we find in Psalm 103 that's translated pit. Uh, you will not let your Holy One see the pit, be abandoned to the pit. Uh, and it's clear here, and, and it's, it's clear too from the New Testament, the way the New Testament uses this word, that the body is involved, or, or uses this passage, that the body is in view here, our, our physical existence. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that we could say about that. But I think it's important just to note that when God created you, when he created Adam, when he created Eve from the body of Adam, he created human beings, body and soul. Um, our bodies matter. Our bodies, not just our souls, but our bodies 
are in view in God's purpose of redemption. And I think this passage suggests that. My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. But the pit becomes representative um, or or a metaphor for the place of the dead. It becomes a, a, a metaphor for the place where the body undergoes dissolution. Uh, where the body is destroyed, where, where the body decays. It's, it's the place of death. And that place is set in contrast to the presence of God. Sheol, the place of corruption, is the place away from the presence of God. It's the place opposed to life that stands in contrast to life. It stands opposed to the place where there is fullness of joy and where there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16 is really a remarkable passage. This is another thing we can talk about, but uh, human beings were created for joy. We were created for pleasure, right? I, um, I believe in the prosperity gospel, rightly understood, right? Because we were made for shalom. We were made for blessing. We were made to live in a world that prospers, that's vibrant, that's full and pulsating with life. And that's what gets lost because of sin. Uh, so Sheol becomes this, this place of corruption, a place away from the presence of God, opposed to life, to fullness of joy, uh, opposed to pleasures forevermore. All of those things are found in the presence of God. Um, same idea appears in Isaiah, chapter 38, verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, He thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. So you you see in that, whether the the passage from the Psalms or the passage from Isaiah, that that the pit um, really is a place of hopelessness, a place place of despair, a place of dissolution. Um, And it is sin, as we've seen not only from from Isaiah, but other places, we understand that that it is sin that consigns us to this place. Sin has its consequence. We said it this morning. Uh, Sin always leads to death. It it did big picture in Genesis chapter 3, and and subsequently, um, sin uh, always leads in the direction um, of destruction, of corruption, and death. So again, the pit becomes a, a, a metaphor a very, a very multi-layered, theologically laden metaphor that actually ends up pointing to a threefold deliverance. A threefold deliverance. In the Bible, in, in the biggest sense, to be delivered from the pit, to be redeemed from the pit, is to be delivered from physical death, but also spiritual death, meaning the final judgment of God. And as we'll see, and as Steve has already mentioned, it becomes a metaphor for for being delivered from the devil, who has the power of death. 
and who keeps people imprisoned in fear because he has the power of death. So being delivered from the the pit is rescue from judgment, the wrath of God. It's rescue from the devil and it's rescue from death. Now, we don't we don't talk much. We don't hear much um, about about judgment and and wrath and hell. Um, maybe it's an overreaction to, you know, to, I don't know, fundamentalist preaching or some, I don't know, you know, revivalist. I don't know what the deal is there. I, I really don't. But the scriptures do talk about it and talk about it in very graphic language. Uh, Isaiah 66, verses 18 and following. I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come, and they shall see my glory, and I shall set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And it's, it's a resting language. You get this contrast between those whom God will gather together, who will worship him forever, and those who have rebelled against him and will find themselves in this place of destruction, this place of dissolution, this place of death. Striking, um, lots of people have observed this, um, that, that the, the, I think I'm correct in saying this, certainly the majority and maybe even the vast majority of references in the New Testament to judgment and hell are actually found on the lips of Jesus. Matthew chapter 13. He left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Later in Matthew, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea, which gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 13, 36 to 43 and 47 to 50. Luke 13, 22 to 30. Um, similarly, um, Jesus um, will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Um, you'll, you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. The people will come from the east and from the west, from north and south, and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Um, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, makes reference to the second death, physical death. And those who experience the second death, the physical death, are cast into the lake of fire. So these are pictures of judgment. The judgment of God rightly falling upon those who have rebelled against him and resisted his offers of salvation in Jesus Christ. And they're ominous. And they're scary. Remember one of my teachers being asked the question, are we supposed to take this literally? And he said, no. They're metaphors. The reality is always immeasurably Worse than the metaphors used to describe it. Now, why do I tell you this? So that you can rejoice, brothers. So that you can rejoice, as David does. So that you can bless the Lord because you've been delivered from this. This this is what the cross is all about. As we said this morning, the judicial wrath of Jesus Christ, hell itself, rested upon Jesus as he died on the cross as your substitute. He was visited with what you deserve. So that as we said, when you come to your last day and you breathe your last breath, you'll pass through judgment. It will not touch you because it touched Jesus. You have been delivered from this pit of destruction. And then there's the devil. And Steve stole some of my thunder. Oh, no. I loved it. I loved it when the Holy Spirit orchestrates stuff, right? This, this great passage, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy... This is interesting that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. We know that he's destroyed death. We'll come to that in a minute. 
But he not only has destroyed death, he has destroyed the one who has the power of death in order to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The devil holds people in his grasp. The the devil imprisons people in the fear of death. I've been, Chris has been a pastor for 30 years, 28, whatever. Yeah, getting close. I've been a pastor for 45 years, right? I've I've been with lots of Christians as they've faced death. I've been with lots of non-Christians as they've faced death. I'm telling you guys, the difference is real. Death is not a pleasant thing. It is not something to be taken lightly. But the Christian can stare it in the faith because the face because of what Jesus has done. The Christian can stare death in the face and know that he or she is no longer imprisoned by it has been set free, free from the fear of death. I'm talking with a couple guys after the morning session and um, mentioned this Alison Krauss song, Alison Krauss with this, um, this family, this, this bluegrass gospel family. The song is, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Right? I mean, dying is a real deal. But for those who are Christians, we have been delivered. We've been delivered from the fear of death by what Jesus have, has done. And, and this, actually, this actually gets us into one of what I think is one of the greatest themes of the Bible. And maybe it may be the great theme of the Bible. In, in one sense, it's really what the Bible is all about. The idea that a warrior a champion, a Messiah who fights for his people will come to overthrow the devil, will come to crush the ancient serpent, right? The the first promise of the Bible of a savior is Genesis 3.15, right? Where God speaks to the serpent, that that whole deal, the, the the, the creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and then fall, chapter 3. And then God's respond to the re- response to the, the, to the rebellion of the man and the woman is, is fascinating to me for a number of reasons. One of which is his first words of judgment are not spoken to the man, not spoken to the woman, but spoken to the serpent. Spoken to the one who is, is behind all of this temptation and seduction and this te- attempt to overthrow the rightful, righteous rule of God. And he speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Hostility between the seed of the woman who represents the line of faith and the seed of the serpent representing the line of unbelief. From Genesis 3.15 forward, God is saying there's going to be hostility between the people of God and the people of, de- of the devil. It's going, to, it's, going to, it's going to characterize all of human history. Right? Sometimes the war is less intense than at other times, but always there is going to be this conflict. But then, after having said, I'm going to put hostility between your seed and her seed, he says, God says, he... Singular pronoun, he, one person, he 
shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So a conflict is coming. And in that conflict, the seed of the woman, the singular seed of the woman will have his heel bruised. But in the process, he will strike a mortal blow to the head of the serpent. Now, what does that sound like? Okay, okay, so here's, here's the story, right? The pastor has the kids down front to tell them, you know, to tell them the Sunday sermon. And he asks them this question. What's brown and furry and lives in trees? He gets no answer. Now, come on, kids. What's brown and furry, has a long bushy tail and lives in trees? Come on, kids. You can tell me what it is. What's brown and furry, has a long bushy tail, hides acorns and lives in trees? Finally, Tommy back in the back says, I know the right answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> right? So who does it sound like? I mean, it's, right? It's Jesus. It's the great conflict that comes to a head at the cross where the one who appears to have suffered a mortal wound actually in his death inflicts the mortal wound and crushes the head of the serpent. You know, the whole reason for Jesus coming into the world is to destroy the one who has the power of death. Yes, to die on the cross to secure forgiveness for us. Yes, subsequently to be raised to secure for us new life. But in the midst of that, there is this great opponent, the ancient serpent, whom Jesus, by his death, by his ministry and by his death, will destroy. It's, um, this, is, this has fascinated me for years, and I, I, can't, I just can't get enough of this. If you, if you look at the progression of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is a definite progression in those, in those Gospels. If you look at Mark's gospel, his gospel opens with this reference to the Old Testament and the promise of a messenger who will come. That's the promise of John the Baptist. The next few verses then describe John's ministry. The next verses, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, describe the baptism of Jesus, where John baptizes Jesus, and at the end of that baptism, the Spirit descends upon Jesus and rests upon Jesus. Jesus' baptism was his Pentecost. Right? You remember Pentecost when the Spirit falls upon the church? The church has been hiding. They've been afraid. They've been fearful. The Spirit falls. And Peter, the consummate coward, the consummate duplicitous coward, who's more concerned about his own skin than he is, good friend, is his good friend Jesus, Peter the coward, having been anointed by the Spirit, preaches the first sermon and 3,000 people are converted. Right? Pentecost was Jesus being clothed with the Spirit, commissioned and empowered for his ministry. And the next thing that happens in Mark's Gospel is that the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days where he engages the devil, where he's tempted by the devil. What's going on in the wilderness? I've, I've got to read this to you. Sinclair Ferguson, another guy whose name is good to know, has this great description of what's happening as Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. 
He writes this, It has been commonplace to interpret Jesus' temptations as like our own, almost a model for the tempting of the Christian. Christ was tempted as we are, but resisted, therefore we should resist in similar ways. But this leads to a partial and actually a negative interpretation of his experiences. His temptations constitute an epical event. They are not merely personal, they are cosmic. They constitute the tempting of the last Adam, the second Adam. Yes, there is a common bond between his temptations and ours. He is really and personally confronted by dark powers. But the significance of Jesus' temptation does not lie in ways in which our temptations are like his, but in the unique character of his experience. I love this. He was driven into the wilderness as an assault force. His testing was set in the context of a holy war in which he entered the enemy's domain, absorbed his attacks, and sent him into retreat. In the power of the Spirit, Jesus advanced as the divine warrior, the God of battles who fights on behalf of his people and for their salvation. His triumph demonstrates that the kingdom of God is near and that the messianic conflict has begun. I love that. Jesus comes as the divine warrior to make an assault on the kingdom of darkness. Think about it this way. The first Adam is in a garden, a place pulsating with life. The serpent makes an assault on the garden and turns it into a wilderness. The second Adam comes and makes an assault on the wilderness in order to renew all things and turn it back into a garden. I love that stuff. But what we're focused on here is the fact that Jesus comes in this way to make an assault on the kingdom of darkness and to begin the work of crushing the devil under his feet. And that's going to come to a great conclusion at the end of history, which is what the whole purpose of the revelation is. The whole purpose of that book is to lead us to chapter 19, where Babylon, the great harlot, is finally brought down and is crushed. Right? Don't, don't get confused with all of the details in the Revelation. Just trust me. That's what this story is about. That's what the Revelation is about. It's about King Jesus bringing down the kingdom of darkness. That's what Genesis 3.15 is pointing us to. That's what the writer to the Hebrews has in mind as he tells us that the devil comes or that Jesus comes into the world to crush the serpent under his feet. And then finally, so deliverance from the wrath of God, the judgment of God, deliverance from from the devil who has the power of death. And then finally, deliverance from death itself. And let me just let me just finish with this. Um, this little passage from Paul's letter to the second letter, I'm sorry, his first letter to the Thessalonians. These Thessalonians were new Christians. Um, Paul had preached the gospel there. Churches were being established, but they were young Christians. And we don't know exactly what Paul preached to them, but it certainly was Jesus. 
And it certainly included the hope of eternal life along with forgiveness of sin. But these folks had some questions. So when my husband died, when my child died, when my uncle died, where did, where did my child go? Where did my uncle go? Where did my spouse go? Paul is responding to those questions. What happened to believers at the point of death? And he writes this to answer the question. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Three times Paul refers to Christians who have died as being asleep. Three times. Anybody take a nap this afternoon? Right? I did. When you take a nap, what do you expect? You expect to wake up. When you fall asleep at night, you expect to wake up in the morning. That's why Paul uses this imagery of sleeping. Because believers who die in Jesus Christ, their bodies, while separated from their souls, as our confession says, rest in their graves as if in their beds. What happens at the point of death? At the point of death for the believer, the soul of the believer proceeds immediately into the presence of Jesus, where, where he or she knows a joy that is unspeakable and unimaginable. But there is a divorce. There is a separation of body and soul, these things that are meant to be together. And the body rests in the grave. And the body begins to be dissolved and to decay. But what Paul is saying is that that's not the end of the story. To stand at the grave of a Christian is not the end for that person. It's a new chapter. There's grief. But as Paul says here, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and because we believe that those who have died in Christ will themselves rise again, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with hope because the day is coming when Jesus will descend. It's coming. I mean, the heavens are going to be ripped apart, and there's going to be a blast of a trumpet and the voice of an archangel and a cry of command. And at that cry of command, those who have died in Christ will come out of the graves, 
Their bodies will be remarried to their souls. And they enter into the full enjoyment of the salvation that Jesus has purchased for them. You can look at the end of this chapter, this end of this chapter 4, and you can, by what Paul says in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. It kind of leaves you with the impression that we're going to be floating around on clouds forever, right? Well, if if you live in Paul's day, what you're seeing Paul describe here is the return of a conquering general, a general who has defeated his foes and who is returning with the spoils of war. And he gets, as he gets closer to his capital city, the trumpeters on the walls of the city announce his arrival. And as he approaches, the people from the city come out of the city to welcome the victorious king, the victorious general. And they follow him back into the city, celebrating his victory and beginning to enjoy the spoils of that victory. That's what's going to happen. The clouds are for angels. Let the angels have the clouds. But when Jesus comes back and bodies are restored and reunited with their souls, we will follow Jesus, our King, into a new heaven and a new earth and enjoy the spoils of his victory forever and ever and ever. So what has Jesus done? What has he done? What is, what is being sort of alluded to in Psalm 103? You've been delivered from the pit. You've been delivered from the wrath and judgment of God. You've been delivered from the devil's power over you. And you've been delivered from death itself so that you might enjoy life in Jesus forever and ever. That's a, I think that's a reason to rejoice. I think that's a reason to say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Let me pray for us and then you guys can ask questions or make comments. Lord Jesus, thank you for these um, these things that we've been thinking about. Um, thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, thank you so very much that the healing is underway and the healing will be brought to completion. Thank you so much for what you've delivered us from. Every one of us in this room, I trust. And I pray that as we think about these things, reflect upon these things, these things would make our hearts glad as they made David's heart glad. Lord, would you, by your grace, do that? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thoughts, questions, comments? You guys, again, you've been super patient. And um, I know we got packing up to do and stuff. And afternoon sessions are always tough. But... Questions? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, um, as our world has kind of ignored the devil and just kind of pushed him into what they would describe as irrelevance to their life, as our culture has kind of embraced the idea of, you know, everything to know is 
able to be measured and able to be seen, and this spiritual realm is non-existent. Um, how do you see the, I guess, personal usefulness of keeping alive that narrative that you describe of the grand cosmic battle between Jesus defeating Satan? Like, to an average person today who goes, interacts with people who is so far away from thinking in those cosmic terms, what personal good, what relational good, what, how do we use that cosmic narrative for our own life to matter to our daily mm. interaction with our life and our world? Mm. That yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I just, you know, I mean, this is what I've, look, I, I don't think I've said anything today or last night that's new, right? I need to be reminded of these things, right? So for, for me, you know, for a person just to be reminded of how grand this work of Jesus is, that it is cosmic in scope. It is, I don't minimize I don't minimize at all the forgiveness of sin for an individual. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. It's cosmic. This, this thing that Jesus done leads to the complete renovation of the whole cosmos. The curse being lifted. Everything being restored. Everything being as it should be. That, that's deeply encouraging to me. Personally. And I just it's something I need to be reminded of. And I love... I love reading books that, that, that kind of allude to that or, or that sort of retell that story. That's why I made a commitment several years ago that I haven't fulfilled, but, but I'm still trying to do it. Reading the Chronicles of Narnia every year, reading them and rereading them so that I can get to the last battle, you know, which, which is Lewis's way of, of sort of capturing the, the, the grand goal of, of history and the narrative. I'm, I'm reading a book uh, right now by um, James Smith, James K. A. Smith, Jamie Smith. Uh, it's called On the Road with St. Augustine. And he's, he's just, I mean, he sees, he sees Augustine as the first, I mean, he's not the first, but as a very articulate um, exponent of of the soul's longing for paradise, right? Um, and so I just love reading that stuff because it's an encouragement to me. But I think I think this becomes a way for us to talk with people about the gospel, actually, because they long for this, no matter how distanced they might be from from this great narrative, how much how dismissive they might be. Of, of, um, of the of the supernatural or the, you know, whatever. I mean, no matter how imprisoned they might be in their materialism, their pessimism, uh, their empiricism, their rationalism, um, they're human beings created in the image of God, and deep in their bones, we all long for paradise. We were made for it, and we long for it. So I, I just think, and I would say this too, I think all great narratives are just knockoffs. 
They're borrowed capital from the great narrative of the promise of this warrior king who will come to destroy evil. I mean, I think the Marvel films, haven't seen one of them, but my boss has seen all of them. And he tells me about them. They're all knockoffs. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, in one sense, they're really about Jesus and the restoration of goodness and beauty and stuff like that. So I think this becomes a way for us to talk to our unbelieving friends. I will say this because, and I think, I'm sure you guys know this, because those sort of theological categories and, and that sort of language just sort of isn't in their vocabulary, we've got to be extremely patient. We, we've got to be in relationships for a long time because, because people need to have their vocabularies built Right. So I, I don't know if that's helpful, but um, that's my kind of my that's my response. Well, I, I would just add you talk about story, which is beautiful. Um, Tolkien wrote a, a story very similar to this, where the Dark Lord captures a person and forces him to see the world through the Dark Lord's mm-hmm. eyes. And so he witnesses all the evil that the mm-hmm. Dark Lord is carrying out. But he doesn't see it from the conquering king's perspective. Mm-hmm. He sees it from the dark lord's perspective. And then the dark lord lets him go. And is like, go back to the world. Mm-hmm. After you have seen all of the damage and evil that I have wrought. Mm-hmm. And the man ter- returns to the world broken. Because he sees, mm-hmm. has, has seen the world through the devil's eyes. Mm-hmm. And I often look at our culture as not being free of the superstition of you know, they, they, they blind themselves to the lenses that they're seeing the world through. Yeah. And to rob the world of its spiritual realm, to rob the world of the conquering king, is to see the world through the devil's eyes. Yeah, sure. That, that the narrative is death, destruction, sure. end of you. The nihil, you know? the, the nihil, the abyss, the nothingness. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that, that all they have is delay and silence of that destruction, yeah. not overcoming and right. finishing that. Right, you know? yeah, sure. Sure. Of course, Tolkien's other thing, the thing for which I guess he's the most famous, does culminate in the return of the king. Right. You know. So. Yeah. Gosh, this is this is fun for me, guys. I I don't. I'm really grateful to be able to be here. So thanks for your patience. Chris, any parting words? Steve, any closing stuff here? For the guys, I guess I should pray, shouldn't I? Yeah, you can pray. Yeah, that'd be great. I did once. Yeah, but you can wrap it up. That'd be great. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time. Um, I do pray so much that um, the conversations, all of the, all of the fellowship that we've enjoyed, the, the stuff we've been thinking about. Um, by your grace, all of this stuff would be um, food for us, um, food for the journey, food for nourishment, for for continuing to to walk this path and and persevere in this in this thing that you've called us to, following Jesus. Um, Lord, grant us grace to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join me in thanking Mike for coming out and speaking.